0: Uh, first off, uh, we're kinda, kind of, I'm kind of an old school guy, so we're going to do it an old school way. Does everybody have a Bible with them? If not, raise your hand. We don't have anything set up for the screen. Uh, these poor guys in the sound uh, ministry didn't have a clue what I was going through, I'm sure, this morning. So raise your hand, you guys, if you need a Bible so we can follow along. Um, when, when you get there, open up to the book of James. James is in, towards the end of the New Testament, right past the book of Hebrews. We began with James last week as Rory was, was teaching James chapter 1, 1 through 4. And we uh, had an opportunity to get into a little bit of the historical background as to who James is, where he came from, what the epistle's about, and that kind of, that kind of thing. So let's just um, uh, revisit that one more time. Um, It's written by James, the half-brother of Christ, who was a non-believer, a non-believer growing up with Jesus, a non-believer during Jesus' three-year ministry of sharing the gospel of his kingdom. And something happened. Uh, We get a hint of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where James had a personal, powerful encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that changed who James was. James was no longer um, uh, a half brother who would mimic and make fun of Christ as we see in John chapter seven. But he became an instrument of the gospel. Um, it, It rocked his world and he would never be the same again, that encounter with Christ. He was nicknamed James the Just because of his devotion to righteousness. This epistle of James, or letter of James, is probably the earliest written book of the New Testament canon, dated somewhere between AD 44 and AD 50. James was martyred for his faith in AD 62. And the epistle is written with a devotion to direct statements on wise living. The emphasis being on practical, not emphasizing theoretical knowledge, but godly behavior. James's passionate desire as we get into this epistle and we start going through. Uh, the different chapters, his passionate desire was for his readers to be uncompromisingly obedient to the word of God. The exhortation of James is that true saving faith is demonstrated by the evidence of action. That salvation is absolutely by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. James is saying that the test of real faith is whether it issues inappropriate appropriate behavior. So let's take a look at the the passages we're going through. James 1, verse 1 through verse 8. It says, James, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren... Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, in Jesus' name we are so thankful for the opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth, gathered together as men and women who adore you. We thank you for the opportunity to praise your name. And we thank you for your written word, Lord, that we can dive into deeper understanding and application of what your word means in our life. God, we need your spirit this morning. Would you pour out your spirit and transform us by the renewing of our minds that we may understand your spiritual truth? Lord, convict us where conviction is needed. Encourage and comfort where encouragement and comfort are needed. But above all, Lord Jesus, be honored, be glorified here today. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Okay, let's, let's recap a little bit with the teaching that went on last week. We began in verse 1 through verse 4 is where Rory ended off. Verse 1, James declares his uncompromising dedication to Jesus Christ as Lord. He, He declares his uncompromising dedication to Jesus as Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Awaited One. And again, like I said, as Lord, as Yahweh, as God. The letter was written to Jewish converts who have been persecuted for their faith. For their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and scattered abroad. And as it begins in verse 2, here we've learned that God uses trials in our lives to test our faith. To grow us in our faith and to refine our faith. This testing produces within us certain particular characteristics called patience or endurance, as it speaks of in verse 4. Perseverance. And if we allow this characteristic to have its way in us during trials, it'll produce in us a maturity that is fully developed, that is complete, preparing us for the kingdom of God with no weak spots knowing then God's motives of what's going on behind the scenes with testing, when we face the trials of life, we're able to face them with a peace and an inner joy that drives us into a greater trust in who Jesus is. Through trials, a Christian learns to understand with endurance, can handle the pressure of a trial until God, in his appointed time, chooses to take that trial away. And during that time, um, a a Christian following through, um, allowing this characteristic of patience or endurance to have have its perfect work, during that time, we can cherish the benefit of that. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, kind of recaps this teaching that we had last week. Peter writes, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter ends that first epistle in chapter 5 with a verse that I've grown to love. And this was pointed out by Linda as we were on our way to Bend after a service one time, after second service. We were talking about the trials that we were facing in life. We're talking about some of the trials and tribulations that we see in our loved ones, our brothers and sisters in Christ here in this church. And she called my attention to this verse. It says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. As we begin verses 5 through 8, there's three things I pray will become perfectly clear as we roll up our sleeves and become workers who are rightly dividing the word of truth. Number one, Jesus is the source and embodiment of, of all wisdom necessary to live this life out as a true disciple of Christ. Colossians 2 verse 10 says that we are complete in him who is the head and principality of all power. Number two, the point that I want to make clear, our great creator is a compassionate God of wonderful provision in times of need. 2 Peter chapter 1. Says his divine power has given to us. All things that pertain to life. And godliness. Through the knowledge of him. Who called us by glory and virtue. Number three. Jesus demands a loyalty. And a faith that is absolutely unwavering. And to completely dependent upon him. And the sobering part of this message in verse 5 through 8 is that a man of divided loyalty will not be blessed. Christ calls our attention to this in Matthew chapter 16 as he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life, For my sake, will find it. So let's look. Verses 5 through 8. Let's read that. It says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So looking at that, you guys, and, and following through as I'm studying and preparing for this morning, um, we're, we're studying through the first four, four verses like Rory did last week, and looking at trials, and we're looking at tribulations, and we're looking at, at how we can count it all joy to go through those tribulations. And it says that, you know, we know certain things. In verse 3, it says, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience, we can let that characteristic um, have its full development in us. And in that, we kind of understand maybe what's going on behind the scenes in these trials and tribulations that we face. But my question is, I, as I first started studying, studying this is, how does wisdom... This section of wisdom, verse 5 through 8, fit into what seems to be, in most of chapter 1, a discussion of trials. A discussion of how we endure through trials. The other question I had was, as it ends in verse 4, it says, Let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then verse 5 begins, As if you lack this one thing, ask of God. If you lack wisdom, well, I understand what uh, uh, we understand wisdom to be in our human nature, in our culture, in this language, that it, it's, um, it's, it's intelligence, it's, it's common sense, it's maybe experience combined with some of those two attributes, right? That's what we look at from our, our human perspective. But how does that fit in here? And and my question is, to myself as I'm studying, is, what is wisdom? Maybe I don't understand what the biblical Greek definition of what wisdom truly is. So I had to do some digging. So what is wisdom? And what does the Bible say about wisdom? Wisdom in the Greek is a word called Sophia. And it shows up 51 times in the New Testament... And this helps shed some light for me. The, the definition I found in the Greek is, is this. It says he de- it denotes the capacity to not only understand something, and I'll give an example, like, like Stephen was writing about Moses in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, verse 22, Stephen writes this. He says, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. So it denotes the capacity to not only understand something, but also to act accordingly. Wisdom seems to be, as I as I studied it biblically anyway, the godly definition of wisdom as to taking an understanding that God has opened our eyes to, to know, and then being able to put that knowledge into practice. So uh, let's take a look at Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. Paul was praying for the church at Colossae. And part of what he, he started praying with was this. And let me just show you. It says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding." That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. This wisdom that Paul was praying for for the people of the church at Colossae was that they would grow in this understanding and then be able to apply that in their walk, that they would be able to walk worthy of the Lord, being fruitful. Okay, now this is starting to make more sense to me. I can start figuring out why this word and this term wisdom is starting to fit in here with how we have knowledge of what God's doing behind the scenes in trials. We have this knowledge according to verse, let's see, verse 3. We have this knowledge of what's going on. And in verse 5, it says that we must have an ability to act accordingly. The Bible describes two kinds of wisdom. Um, As as you just go to search that in scripture, it, it starts showing and teaching us that there is a natural or worldly wisdom, and there is a godly wisdom. So let's look at what the word of God says about worldly wisdom. Let's just take a look at that for a second. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which if you have an opportunity to flip there, There's a few verses we can pull out of that because Paul, in that letter to the church at Corinth, talks about godly, or uh, sorry, worldly wisdom quite a bit. In verse 17, he kind of begins to give us a glimpse. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Down in verse 21, Again, this is chapter 1. It says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So the world through its wisdom did not know God. Paul speaks from the heart as he begins chapter 2 in, and verse 2. And I love this. He says, For I have determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I was with you in weakness, in fear, and much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Are we starting to kind of get it? Maybe a little bit. I did. Anyway, maybe I'm slow, but uh, God has to work on me hard. Um, As we go into chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, you know, in verse 19, he says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Back to James as I skip forward to a teaching that's going to come up down the road chapter 3, verse 14, 15, and 16 say this. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. The Bible even talks of false wisdom, I didn't write this down, so let me just find it. The very last verse of Colossians chapter 2, and I'm not going to put this into context, but just just listen to what it says. It says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So there's a line that's drawn between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. God's wisdom stands in marked contrast to world's wisdom, which is doomed to destruction. We know as we look at the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelations 22, that there comes a time that man's worldly wisdom is doomed. So let's take a look at what the Bible says about godly wisdom. Studying through the book of Job recently in the Old Testament, the last verse of chapter 28 says this It says, To man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the one verse that we tend to kind of default to as Christians about wisdom says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Now we're starting to work towards what godly wisdom really is. Back in Proverbs chapter 8, we look at wisdom personified. In other words, made into a person and spoken about. And it speaks of wisdom this way. It speaks that wisdom is from everlasting. So starting with verse 22 of Proverbs, it says, The Lord possessed me, speaking of wisdom, at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. I have been established from everlasting, from the beginning, before there was ever an earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth, while as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in his inhabited world. And my delight was with the sons of men. As we listen to that, it sounds really close to who Jesus Christ is. In my study of what wisdom is, I came to a conclusion that I, that I could not argue against. And that's this. That wisdom, godly wisdom, is the sole possession of Jesus Christ. Godly wisdom cannot be separated from the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus alone is godly wisdom. And, and let me back that up in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, the description of Christ is this. It says, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Further on in that same chapter, chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 30, says, Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3 says this, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. James's Jewish audience recognized this term wisdom as the understanding and practical skill that was necessary to live a life to God's glory. It was not a wisdom of philosophical speculation, but the wisdom contained in the pure and peaceable absolutes of God's will revealed in his word, embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ, and lived out. Only this kind of divine wisdom enables believers to be joyous and submissive in the times of the trials of life, like what's spoken in verses 1 through 4. Therefore wisdom is a part of believer's spiritual growth. In Colossians 1:28 it says him being Christ we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. It's not only a part of a believer's spiritual growth speaking of wisdom, it's a way of living. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. James chapter 3, again in the same epistle we're reading at, kind of cheating and going ahead of the teaching. Verse 13 says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Wisdom is practical rather than speculative. In verse 5, again, getting back to James chapter 1, I know we've been skipping around a little bit. In verse 5, where it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Going back and quoting Proverbs chapter 2, of speaking of wisdom, Verse 3 begins, yes, and if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The verse in James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says, And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Jesus also says in John 14, He says, And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. This asking for wisdom from God is not a suggestion, but it's a command. And it's a very, very important and integral part of a believer's prayer life. Verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, again, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. This is a promise from God who is forever faithful, who promises to pour out in abundance not only the understanding but also the ability to put the understanding to work in the midst of the trial that you're going through right then. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, ask of God. He will give to you liberally and without reproach. You remember the words in in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. And in there's a a, a Greek term that, that we translate as temptations that can also be flip flop for the word trials. Okay? Let me just kind of read this verse to you so it makes sense. It says, No temptation or trial has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tried or tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation or trial will make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful. And God promises his faithfulness to us. I'm kind of a fan of the J.B. Phillips translation a little bit. I don't know if you guys know a lot about that one, but it's uh, written in the late 40s, early 50s uh, by a pastor in London who attempted to make the New Testament easy for his daughter who was a teenager to read and understand all they had was the original King James version at that time and it's it's real it brings some clarity without being watered down verse 5 in that J.B. Phillips translation reads like this it says and if in the process any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem he has only to ask God who gives generously to all men without making them feel guilty. And he may be quite sure that the necessary wisdom will be given him. You know, I have given and surrendered my life to the Lord about eight years ago. And some of you guys here in in this room have been walking with the Lord a lot longer than I have. But during this short time that I've been walking with Christ, one thing I have gone to trust is that in the midst of whatever trial I'm going through, whatever tough times, hardships I'm going through, if I truly, truly hit my knees and with a heartfelt prayer say, Lord, I don't know how to get through this, this seems too big. Every time, whatever that be, whatever, whether it be in, in your marriage relationship, whether it be in your business or financial dealings, whether it be with your children, whether it be with physical health, God is faithful every single time to give you, if you pursue him, that little piece of information, that little piece of scriptural understanding, and the ability to put that to work in your life, not so the trial will go away, but that you can bear it and make it through the other side and do it with joy. Okay, verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This prayer for requesting God's wisdom must be offered with a perfect confidence in the sovereignty of who God is. It's got to be done in faith. I mean, we say that and we bounce that around in our, our Christian discussions all the time but it's got to be a trust in who God is. As we learned when when Kevin had an opportunity to teach through Habakkuk, we learned that a saving faith is a trust, not only in God's faithfulness, his uh, righteousness, his goodness, but that trust is so powerful that it changes who we are and it changes how we view the circumstances that we're in. That's, trust. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, you know, gives that, that definition of faith. As it says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. How do I say this? Well, faith gives substance to the unseen things that scripture speaks of so we can act upon the conviction of its reality. In other words, faith isn't just some, indiv- or some invisible attribute. Faith, it says in Hebrews 11, 1, has substance, and it has evidence. Okay? It says also in verse 6, as we're back to James chapter 1, it says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. This doubting is best described as having one's thinking divided in himself. It's not only a a mental indecision. Doubting is a manifestation of a lack of trust in God. We're all there, right? But in this section of James' epistle, he says, if we lack this, ask of God. The person who lacks a trust in God's ability or God's willingness to provide this wisdom that we're speaking of is like described in verse 6 where it says, "Um, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. the Lord Jesus is willing to put himself out there to be faithful to the promises that he's laid down if we would just believe. And he's ever faithful. If there's doubting, it has to do on our end and and a worship problem in our heart, not with who Jesus Christ is. Elijah speaks of this place of indecision in uh, 1 Kings, let's see, 1 Kings 18, and I'll just read it real quick. He gathered for all the prophets of Baal together, and what he said in verse 21 is he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal follow him, and the people answered, not a word. What do you think Jesus is talking about as he speaks to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3? When in verse 16 he says, So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. This is a place of doubt. This is a place of um, indecision. This is a place of trusting more in our own human ability than it is God's own power and sovereignty as creator of this entire universe. Seven and eight, when we'll end um, this teaching here, seven and eight says, "For not let that man or sorry, for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So what is a double-minded man? (laughs) Well, as I did some research and taking a look in there, uh, looking through a a Greek interliterary Bible, word for word it comes out like this. It comes out saying a two-souled man. Interesting. The double-minded man it speaks of in verse 8 is a literal translation of a Greek expression that means having one's mind or soul divided between God and God and the world. This man that's spoken of, as it says, a double-minded man, is a hypocrite who occasionally believes in God but fails to trust him when trials come and thus receives nothing. The J.B. Phillips translation of verse 8 says, the life of a man of divided loyalty will reveal instability at every turn. Look at the pride in this. And I'm speaking of myself here, you guys, because um, prior to surrendering my life in Christ, and Christ is still doing a, a, a wonderful work in me and growing through things. But prior to that, I knew who Jesus was. I would have told you I had faith in Christ. But when it came down to rubber meets the road, testing of my faith, I defaulted to my backup plan. That was me. Okay? I was the one that had to get myself through these things. I was the one that had to, to make sure that I was, um, had enough fortitude to get through whatever trial was facing me. Do you understand what kind of pride that shows in me? That I have more confidence in this frail, human, sinful individual than I do the creator God of the universe? It just, it just sickens me to look at myself that way in the past and I praise God for his grace that has brought me to an understanding of who he is and who I should be as a follower of Christ. This half-hearted belief, you guys, um, I got to know a gentleman when we moved here 20 years ago. This is before um, my life was surrendered to Christ as Lord. And I had a lot of respect for this guy. Everything he wore represented to me from what I could see a Christian. His t-shirt spoke of Christ. Um, His necklaces had crosses. His earrings had crosses. You called his cell phone. There's a cell phone message of Christ as he leaves that voicemail message for you to leave a message on his phone. And he was successful. I I thought he was. He was successful in business. And you guys, as the economy started to falter and fail as we got into 07, as we got into 08, where financial um, um, wherewithals are crashing and crumbling. All of a sudden, I saw this guy, and I'd come to Christ about a year and a half before that. All of a sudden, I saw this guy who I kind of looked up to, worried and falling apart and emotionally crumbling, making decisions that were not morally correct. And, And I confronted him on it one day. And I said, listen, do you understand what God says in his word? You're a believer in Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Do you get that? And he's like, look, this is too big for Jesus. I've got to take care of this myself. And I went, oh. And I prayed with this guy. We had him come to church here with us. And I watched his life because of a double-minded man. I watched this verse 7 where it says, Let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. I watched his prayers not get answered. I watched him fall into alcohol abuse. I watched him fall into drug abuse. And this is a friend of mine. I watched him fall into pornography. I saw him go into, you know, uh, delve into prostitution. I saw him lose his wife. I saw him lose his family. I saw him lose his house. I saw him lose his business and his job and end up in the streets. Then I saw him in jail. It's a tough place to be. And, And I guess I just think of that. God's doing a work in this gentleman's life now. Um, I pray that God will, and God is so merciful and so gracious, I pray that God will do a work in his heart to understand the sovereign power and goodness of Jesus Christ's faithfulness to his word, and that this guy would believe in that. So what does it look like for a Christian to go through a rough trial, you guys, yet blessed with the wherewithal in wisdom to to carry that trial through to its end? What does it look like? What does it look like from the outside? And I think the Bible answers this in one word. Peace. Isaiah 26.3 says, um, now I'm forgetting it. Uh, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. John fourteen twenty seven. Christ says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give with you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. A couple chapters over in verse, or chapter 16 of John. Christ says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. We know what it looks like. Um, to have the Holy Spirit of God lived in us because it's described in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. This is what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is what it looks like. And then Philippians 4, 7, we've gone through that a couple of times. The world is watching us as believers as we go through trials and tribulations and even persecutions in our life. And they're watching to see if our words are just empty words, or is this who we are? Only Christ abiding in us can bear forth the fruit of joy in the midst of hard, hard things. That's Christ's work in us. And an example of that is, look at Saeed Abedini. Okay, persecuted for his faith. In prison now for his one, two, third Christmas season. That is the kind of faith, that is the kind of of joy, inner peace, going through hard, hard things, that unbelievers see and that they watch and that changes their hearts. So in conclusion, and I'll call the worship team on up. In conclusion, it says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, it says, Christ has become for us wisdom from God. In our teaching here in verse five, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So here's my question today. Have you asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior? Have you chosen to deny yourself and live for Christ? Because He's the one who can give you the ability to do that if you ask. Jesus says in Matthew 7 ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find, knock and the door shall be open unto you, right? Revelations chapter 3, as he's speaking to the church in Laodicea, he says, Behold, I stand and knock at the door. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and him with me. Jeremiah 29 says, For I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day. For those of you that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, today is the day. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. For those of you that have maybe been walking um, with it looks like faith on the outside coming on Sundays, but you've got one foot in the world and one foot in Christ, today is the day. Deny yourself. Pick up the cross and follow him. During this last song, um, us as elders who are here will be up front. I will be anyway. I don't know if we've got anybody of the other guys here. Um, For prayer. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to cry with you. We'd love to laugh with you. We'd love to help welcome you in to the glorious kingdom of Christ.